You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, let's jump right into uh, Galatians 3, starting in verse 1. This is what Paul says. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, I want to focus on two parts of this verse, and then we'll kind of use that to talk through the rest of our uh, 14 verses this morning. So that first sentence is just, it's, it's an exclamation, right? Throughout, throughout the letter to the Galatians, what we've seen is that Paul is at a, at a sort of a high emotional level, right? He's astonished, he's perplexed, he's upset. And so he says, oh foolish Galatians. And while the word foolish is absolutely helpful, I think there's another way that this word could be translated from the Greek that actually serves to help us understand why Paul is as upset as he is. We could read this as not only, oh, foolish Galatians, but oh, illogical Galatians. That in, the way in which they are foolish is that they are thinking in ways that are not logically rational. They don't make sense. What the Galatians are now believing in terms of this heresy, this false teaching that has arisen within the church doesn't make sense. And so he's upset. And what he's going to go on to do over the next 13 verses after this is tell us and expand for us why the thinking of the Galatians is illogical. Why it makes no sense that they would find themselves in this place where they're tempted to believe a false teaching. A false teaching that essentially says, yes, salvation comes through Jesus, but you must also do X, Y, and Z. And so he's going to go on to explain to them that this makes no sense based on two reasons. And really there's a third, but we don't get to that until next week because otherwise we'd be here for a long time this morning. Well, the first reason is what they've actually seen and experienced. And then the second reason that their thinking, their line of thinking in falling for this heresy is illogical is based on the actual content of the covenant that God made with Abraham, their, their predecessor, their ancestor, the very basis for their Jewishness. And so Paul essentially says, look, Galatians, you are illogical. You, you're foolish in that sense, in the sense that you are illogical. And so he says, who has bewitched you? In other words, this new behavior, this new line of thinking, this illogical line of thought was so strange, so completely at odds with the liberating message, this singular gospel that they had previously accepted through the ministry of Paul, that it appeared as if someone had put a spell on them. That that's how illogical, that that's how irrational this new line of thinking in Galatia was. That's why Paul is so angsty, right? He says it just makes no sense. Who's bewitched you? Did somebody, right? Did somebody come in and, you know, I, I didn't do Harry Potter, so I don't know the spell names, but, you know, 
expecto patronum or whatever, right? Is that like, is that what happened? Because it just doesn't make sense. That's again why Paul in chapter 1 says that he's astonished. He says, I am astonished that you're so quickly abandoning this gospel. And so let's, let's let Paul explain for us, again, why this new line of thinking is illogical. The first thing we'll see is that it's illogical based on the very experience of this collection of churches in the region of Galatia. Right? He says this in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Are you so illogical? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer? Or if you have an ESV Bible, you'll note that um, there's a little footnote there. Suffer could also be translated as experience. Did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit, meaning God, does God who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I love how Paul does this because in verse 2, he essentially says, look, I'm just going to ask you one question. And if you concede this question to me, then your entire argument falls apart. But I'm still going to write for three more chapters. And what is that question? That question is, is again, it's, it's predicated upon their experience. How did the Spirit come to you, Galatians? How did the Spirit come? Was it through your years of works of the law? Remember, these were Jews, right? For the most part. There were Gentiles among them, but the, the church in Galatia is majority Jewish, right? So many of them had spent their lives practicing the Jewish faith, and yet the Spirit did not come upon them during that period, but rather came upon them after the gospel was preached to them. And so that's why Paul says, asks this rhetorical question, did you receive the Spirit by your works of the law or was it by hearing through faith? Was it when you heard the word of this gospel that the Spirit came among you? So he's saying, look, look what happened in your own life. It's illogical that you would think or revert to this thinking that the law is what saves you, is what justifies you. Because the Spirit came by faith. And as we know from other parts of the Bible, the Spirit is the seal. The way by which we know that we belong to God's people, God's family. And so it's vintage Paul to continue the argument all the further, to thoroughly dismantle it, right? The next couple of verses continue the same line of thinking. He continues to beat this theme that if the Spirit wasn't brought on by the works of the law, if the work that was begun in them wasn't started by their law-keeping, it doesn't logically follow that the work in them would then be completed by their works of the law. 
Right? So again, what he's saying is, look, Jesus didn't start the, like, start it and now we have to finish it. Right? He's saying salvation, all of it, the whole thing has been initiated by Jesus, but it's also going to be completed by him. That's why in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul expands on this idea when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So salvation from beginning to end is the work of Jesus. And to think that Jesus would get us started, but that we would then complete it, because we have such a good record before, is utterly illogical. It makes no sense. But it's not only illogical based on their own experience, it's, it's illogical based on their heritage, based on the whole theme of their understanding of the covenant. This Jewish identity that began with Abraham millennia prior to where they find themselves now. Right? So he expands on that argument starting in verse 6. He says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so not only does this new heresy that says it's Jesus and your works that save you not make sense according to their own experience, but it makes no sense according to the covenant from the beginning. It doesn't gel with their own sacred history, this thing that they've elevated above the gospel. You see, the law of Moses comes after Abraham. So, how could God's covenant with his people be dependent on a law that was not yet in existence when the covenant began? God is merciful to us in this, brothers and sisters. He didn't give us the covenant and the law at the same time so that we would get confused. No, he gave us the covenant. The covenant apart from the law. And yet, the law plays a vital part within that covenant, but is not dependent on it. The law serves a purpose within this plan, within this thing that God is doing, but it doesn't serve the purpose of justifying, the purpose of making us right before God. Quite the opposite. The law serves to show us our need for something or someone outside of ourselves for making us right with God, for justification. That's Paul's whole, whole argument in Romans chapter 7. And so that there was this confusion on this in Galatia is astounding to Paul. It makes no sense to him. It doesn't make sense from a, on a practical, experiential level, but it doesn't make sense on a theological level either. Because by that logic, Abraham would not have been a member of this Jewish nation. There was no law for him to keep. 
And if law-keeping is essential for right standing before God, for justification, then Abraham didn't have it. And so that's why the Bible tells us that Abraham believed that he had faith and that that is what was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul is, has essentially lost his mind because this just doesn't make sense to him. Well, rather he thinks they've lost their mind. And most of all, it doesn't make sense to him because in the latter half of verse 1, he says, it was before your very own eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, he doesn't necessarily mean that they were witnesses of Jesus' crucifixion. What he's saying is that you have heard this gospel and you have seen it. Your, your eyes were opened, right, in the proverbial sense, to this crucified Jesus in whom you now have faith, and because of that faith, through whom you now have righteousness, justification, right standing before God, acceptance into his family, named as sons and daughters of his. You see, it's the crucifixion, the gospel of Christ crucified as Paul saw it, that so completely ruled out the law as a means of getting right with God, that it was scarcely credible that people who had once embraced such a gospel should ever return to the law for salvation. And so again, this is why Paul continues this just, it's illogical, it doesn't make sense to me, Galatians. And so Christ crucified is the key. This is essentially what Paul's getting at, not only here in verse 1, but also in the latter verses, starting in verse 10. It's why Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, For I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. It's because the event of Jesus' death is the turnkey. It's the fulcrum upon which our understanding of salvation turns. And so Paul explains that for us starting in verse 10. He says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he's going to quote some Old Testament here, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He continues in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying that all who rely on works of the law for right standing before God are under a curse. He's saying if we rely, right? Again, we rely on our ability to keep the law before God to make us right before Him, then we're under a curse. Now, why is that? We're under a curse if we rely on that because there's no one who can fulfill the law. And as the law itself says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's you, and that's me. I have not 
abided by all things written in the book of the law, nor have I done them all. So I'm cursed. And this is why Jesus' perfect life is so important. This is why we keep going back to the perfection of Jesus and the perfection of the life that he lived because Jesus does in his life exactly this. He abides by all things written in the book of the law and he does them. And so Jesus is not under the curse. He's under the blessing. Jesus has done it all. Jesus in his life has shown himself to be able to accomplish that which we could not accomplish, namely perfection. And this is why the crucifixion is so stunning. Because under the law, it's the law breaker, not the law keeper that's cursed, right? So it's you and I that are cursed, not the one who keeps the law, Jesus, right? And yet, Jesus, although he completed the law, he died according to the curse. Why is that? Read verse 13, it says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, Jesus undergoes the penalty that is ascribed to the lawbreaker so that we might be given the reward that is ascribed to the faithful. So that our curse would be replaced with blessing. It's by faith in Jesus and His receiving everything that was ours in sin that we now receive everything that was His in His righteousness, in His law keeping. And it is Jesus' work applied to us by the Spirit that justifies us, that makes us right before God. Right? It's, so it's Jesus' perfect life exchanged for ours, right? Jesus becoming our curse and us becoming his life, right? So that the life we live is no longer ours, but his in us. That that is how we are made right before God. So there's no other way. There's no other way. There's no amount of things that we can do. There's no amount of law keeping that we can acquire or accumulate over our years of life that will make God see us as righteous. It is only through faith in the righteous work of Jesus, which he accomplished and now generously and graciously extends to us. That is the only way by which we are justified. Now, Let's make a necessary and helpful distinction that's going to set us up for the rest of the letter. Because this is so important. If we are not careful, we will confuse justification, how we are made right with God, with the gospel, of which it is a part, 
but not the whole. And we will misunderstand the law. Because we will see the law as purely an antithesis to justification. So let me explain what, I, let me explain what I'm saying. I know there's some, some words in there. What is the gospel? The gospel is not primarily a message of justification. It's not primarily a message of right standing before God. Here's the checkbox of things that you need to believe. The gospel is an event. It is a historical event that took place. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is His stepping out of heaven, coming to dwell among us, to be Emmanuel, God with us, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to resurrect in victory over our sin and over our death so that we might experience new life. It is that event. It is the kingdom come, right? When Jesus comes and he preaches, that's what he preaches. He preaches his kingdom. He preaches his reign over that kingdom. He preaches that we can enter into his reign and enter into his kingdom only through him. It is the proclamation, the gospel, it is, is the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who is now seated at the throne of the universe and will come again in power to make all things new. That's the gospel. That is the gospel in which there is power for salvation, as Romans 1.17 says. Now, justification, right, being made right before God, is part of that but it does not comprise the whole. Justification is part of the gospel. It explains that this gospel message, this message about Jesus and faith in it is the means by which we are made right before God. So it's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus and it's all about our faith in it that is the means by which right standing is secured. And you see, I think especially in Reformed circles, we talk so much about justification that you would think that justification is the gospel. But the gospel is about Jesus, and Jesus came and brought justification. So let's put those in their right order. And now let's talk about the law within that. The law is not the enemy that we think it is. In fact, Paul in, Paul in another one of his letters says that it is good and spiritual. It's good and right and we should keep it. We should keep the law. Which this sounds totally contrary to everything I just said, right? But understand this. We should keep the law, but we should never think that by keeping it, we're justified. The law isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. And therein lies the difference, right? 
Therein lies the key. The law is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. But as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it's by grace through faith we've been saved, not of works so that none can boast. But now, as verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. You see, the law can't be a bad thing and then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say you should go beyond the law. We should keep the law. In fact, Paul will tell us some specific ways the Galatians should do that in the later chapters of this letter. But we shouldn't rely upon it for our salvation because it's our faith that will be credited to us as righteousness, not our law-keeping. You tracking with that? Okay. As we conclude, I, I want to go back to verse 1 because I think it tells us how the, the Galatians came to think and behave so illogically based on the content of the gospel and their corporate experience of its effects among them. Again, Paul in verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, O illogical Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, what I like about this word bewitched is that we could, we could translate it uh, into a, a more modern word. And we could translate it to the word hypnotized. Who has hypnotized you, Galatians? Now, regardless of what you may think the merits of hypnosis are or whether or not it's actually possible, we, we understand at least what it purports itself to be, right? Hypnosis. The definition of hypnosis in the dictionary is this. An induced state of consciousness in which a person apparently, right, so even the dictionary is kind of like sketched out on hypnosis a little bit. <laughs> A state of consciousness in which a person apparently loses the power of voluntary action and is highly responsive to suggestion or direction. So it's a state of consciousness that's induced in which a person apparently loses the power of voluntary action and is highly responsive to the suggestion or the direction of the hypnotizer. And if you've watched any, you know, like movies or maybe even comedy sketches, because there's like, they do stage hypnosis and things like that in Vegas. Another reason not to go to Vegas. Um, <laughs> often it's induced by the eye fixation technique, right? Meaning like someone holds up something shiny, like a, usually it's a, like a, uh, a pocket watch, right? And they just, they dangle it in front of your eyes. And they tell you to focus. All you see, the only thing in your world right now is this shiny little object that's swinging in front of your eyes. And so Paul is asking, who, who has hypnotized you? Who has captivated you with this flashy thing? Again, I know Paul's not saying that directly, but it's a modern way for us to understand it. How is it that you've become fixated by this thing of so little substance? 
Here's how I think it happened. Let's recall for a moment that the Jews are the majority culture in the church in Galatia. They're the majority culture. And so in many ways, like in every other country and every other culture, when there's a majority, there is a level at which minorities are expected to assimilate. It's just kind of normal. It's just kind of what happens, right? And I think this is why that happens. It happens because the majority culture, the narrative of majority culture, is the narrative that we are so regularly confronted by. Right? In that every day when we turn on our TVs, when we check our Facebooks, when we uh, have ads filtered to us from every, every single direction you could possibly imagine, right? That, that in every single one of those moments, in the conversations that we're having with people who are not believers, in, in the conversations that we're joining into in our social media, in the conversations that we're joining into by reading newspapers and magazines and all, like, that all of those things are essentially... something that if we are not careful, that if we fixate too closely upon them, we will become highly responsive to their suggestions or their direction. What I mean by that is that majority culture induces a sort of hypnosis simply by the relentless, rhythmic, monotonous repetition of subtle heresy. And so I don't think, brothers and sisters, that tomorrow we'll find ourselves in grave heresy. But I do think that if we're not careful over time, if we're not continually being not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind according to the Word of God, if we're not doing that, then there's a good chance... that will eventually become fixated. That it will eventually become all too easy to believe the suggestions of our culture, to believe the direction of our culture is the true and right way. That if we don't follow along, we'll be on the wrong side of history. And yet, if history is Jesus' history, then we will always be on the right side of history. We will be tempted to believe these things that are utterly illogical based on our experience, based on what the Bible has told us about the covenant, based on everything that we have seen and known about God through His Word, and we will believe them because we've been fixated upon something else. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, it's my hope. It's my hope that we will return to what Paul is begging, pleading with the Galatians to return to. And that is a fixation 
on something else, a fixation upon Jesus. Right? Going back to Paul's quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what does he say? I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. And here's the thing. Paul's a smart dude. Paul's engaged with the culture. Paul knows what's out there. He's able to speak insightfully about what is happening in the world around him. And yet, he relies on none of that intellect, none of that ability. He resolves to know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. Because it's in a a fixation upon Him that we won't be led by the suggestions and the direction of our culture. But we'll, we'll be led by the suggestions and the directions of Jesus. And so we not only need, but we have been given a new fixation. We need to see beyond the flash that majority culture tries to hypnotize with and look through it beyond to the glorious and beautiful reality that is there in Christ Jesus. And Paul is going to show us a bit more of how that works in the chapters to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. God, we're, again, grateful to be here, gathered among a people who have not been justified by their accomplishments, but that have been justified, they've been made right through Jesus and His accomplishments on their behalf. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, this event in human history where you came among us in your son Jesus, you lived perfect life among us in your son Jesus, died a death in our stead in Jesus, and were raised victorious over Satan, over sin, and over death so that we might enter into a new kingdom, a kingdom that is reconciled and made new. And we thank you, Lord, that the way that we get to enter into that kingdom is not through something that we can do, but rather it's through something that Jesus already did. And so may we have faith in that, Father, and may we become fixated upon it so much so, Father, that we are not tempted by the illogical heresies that surround us, the false teachings that will challenge what we know to be true in your word. So Lord, I pray that you'd be with us, that you'd go before us, Lord, that you would meet us at your table and remind us, God, that you have supplied for us all things in the broken body and the shed blood of your son, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.